Chapter 9 of The Heart of the Ancient Wood This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Sandra, near Montreal, 2022. The Pax Mirande After this experience, Kirsty would have been more anxious than before about Miranda had it not been for the child's remarkable friendship with the great she-bear. As soon as the snow was gone and the ancient wood again began to lure Miranda with its mystic stillness and transparent twilight, Kroof reappeared, as devoted as ever. When Kroof was absent, the woods were to the child a forbidden realm, into which she could only peer with longing and watch the furtive folk with those initiated eyes of hers. A little later, when the mosses were dry and when the ground was well hardened with the fecundating heats of June, Miranda had further proof of her peculiar powers of vision. One day she and Kroof came upon a partridge hen with her new-hatched brood at the edge of a thicket of young birches. The hen went flopping and fluttering off among the trees as if sorely wounded, and Kroof, convinced of a speedy capture, followed eagerly. She gave a glance about her first, however, to see if there were any partridge chicks in the neighbourhood. To Miranda's astonishment, the wise animal saw none but Miranda saw them distinctly. There they were, all about her, moveless little brown balls, exactly like the leaves and the moss and the scattered things of the forest floor. Some were half hidden under a leaf or twig, some squatted in the open, just in the positions in which the alarm had found them. They shut their eyes, even, to make themselves more at one with their surroundings. They would have endured any fate. They would have died on the spot rather than move. So perfect was their baby obedience to the partridge law. This obedience had its reward. It gave them invisibility to all the folk of the wood, friends and foes alike. But there was no such thing as deceiving Miranda's eyes. She was not concerned about the mother partridge because she saw through her pretty trick and knew that Kroof could never catch her. Indeed, in her innocence, she did not think good Kroof would hurt her if she did catch her. But these moveless chicks, on the other hand, were interesting. One, two, three, Miranda counted ten of them, and there were more about somewhere, she imagined. Presently the mother bird came flopping around in a circle to see how things were going. She saw Miranda stoop and pick up one of the precious brown balls, and then another, curiously but gently. In her astonishment the distracted bird forgot Kroof for a second and was almost caught. Escaping this peril by a sudden wild dash, and realizing that from Miranda there was no concealment, she flew straight into the densest part of the thicket and gave a peremptory call. At the sound, each little motionless ball came to life. The two that were lying as if dead on Miranda's outstretched palms hopped to the ground and all darted into the thicket. A few low but sharply articulated clucks and the mother bird led her brood off swiftly through the bush while Kroof, somewhat crestfallen, came shambling back to Miranda. All this time, in spite of the affair of the wolves, the attack of Ganner, the lynx on Michael, and that tell-tale spot of blood and fur on the snow where the owl had torn the hair for his midnight feast, Miranda had regarded the folk of the ancient wood as a gentle people, living for the most part in a voiceless amity. Her seeing eyes quite failed to see the unceasing tragedy of the stillness. She did not guess that the furtive folk whom she watched about their business went always with fear at their side, and death lying in wait at every turn. 
She little dreamed that for most of them the very price of life itself was the ceaseless extinguishing of life. It was during the summer that Miranda found her first and only flaw in Kroof's perfections. For Kroof she regarded as second only to her mother among created beings. But on one memorable day when she ran across the fields to meet Kroof at the edge of the wood, the great bear was too much occupied to come forward as usual. She was sniffing at something on the ground which she held securely under one of her huge paws. Miranda ran forward to see what it was. To her horror, it was the warm and bleeding body of a hare. She shrank back, sickened at the sight. Then, in flaming indignation, she struck Kroof again and again in the face with the palms of her little hands. Kroof was astonished, temperately astonished, for she always knew Miranda was peculiar. She lifted her snout high in the air to escape the blows, shut her eyes, and meekly withdrew the offending paw. "'Oh, Kroof, how could you?' "'I hate you, bad Kroof. "'You're just like the wolves,' cried Miranda, "'her little bosom bursting with wrath and tears. "'Kroof understood that she was in grievous disgrace. "'Carrying the dead hare with her, "'Miranda ran out into the potato patch, "'fetched the hoe, "'returned to the spot where the bear still sat "'in penitential contemplation, "'and proceeded in condemnatory silence "'to dig a hole right under Kroof's nose.' Here she buried the hare, tenderly smoothing the ground above it. Then, throwing the hoe down violently, she flung her arms about Kroof's neck and burst into a passion of tears. "'How could you do it, Kroof?' she sobbed. "'Oh, perhaps you'll be wanting to eat up Miranda some day.' Kroof suffered herself to be led away from the unhappy spot. Soon Miranda grew calm and the painful scene seemed forgotten. The rest of the afternoon was spent very pleasantly in eating wild raspberries along the farther side of the clearing. To Groof's mind it gradually became clear that her offence lay in killing the hare, and as it was obvious that Miranda liked hares, she resolved never to offend again in this respect, at least while Miranda was anywhere in the neighbourhood. After Miranda had gone home, however, the philosophical Groof strolled back discreetly to where the hare was buried. She dug it up and ate it with great satisfaction, and afterwards she smoothed down the earth again that Miranda might not know. After this trying episode, Miranda had every reason to believe that Kroof's reformation was complete. Little by little, as month followed month and season followed season, and year rolled into year at the quiet cabin in the clearing, Miranda forgot the few scenes of blood which had been thrust upon her. The years now little varied one from another. Yet to Miranda the life was not monotonous. Each season was for her full of events, full of tranquil uneventfulness for Kirsty. The cabin became more homelike as currant and lilac bushes grew up around it, a green sweet covert for birds, and abundant scarlet-blossomed bean-vines mantled the barrenness of its weathered logs. The clearing prospered, the stock increased. Old Dave hardly ever visited at the clearing, but he went back laden with stuff to sell for Kirsty at the settlement. Among the folk of the forest, Miranda's ascendancy kept on growing, little by little, till though none of the beasts came to know her as Kroof did, they all had a tendency to follow her at a respectful distance, without seeming to do so. They never killed in her presence, so that a perpetual truce, as it were, came at last to rule within eyeshot of her inescapable gaze. Sometimes the advent of spring would bring Kroof to the clearing, not alone, but with a furry and jolly black morsel of a cub at her side. 
The cub never detracted in the least from the devotion which she paid to Miranda. It always grew up to young bearhood in more or less amiable tolerance of its mother's incomprehensible friend, only to drift away at last to other feeding grounds. For Kroof was absolute in her own domain, and suffered not even her own offspring to trespass thereon when once they had reached maturity. Cubs might come, and cubs might go, but the love of Kroof and Miranda was a thing that rested unchanging. In the winters, Miranda now did most of the knitting while Kirsty wove on a great clacking loom the flax which her little farm produced abundantly. They had decided not to keep sheep at the clearing, lest their presence should lure back the wolves. One warm day toward spring, when old Dave, laden with an ample pack of mittens, stockings, and socks which Miranda's active fingers had fashioned, was slowly trudging along the trail on his way back to the settlement, he became aware that a pair of foxes followed him. They came not very near, nor did they pay him any marked attention. They merely seemed to favor his company, as he himself put it. He was thus curiously escorted for perhaps a mile or two to his great bewilderment, for he knew no reason why he should be so chosen out for honor in the wood. At another time, when similarly burdened, Wapiti the buck came up and sniffed at him very amicably. During the next winter, when he was carrying the same magic merchandise, several hares went leaping beside him, not very near, but as if seeking the safety of his presence. A mystery of all this weighed upon him. He was at first half inclined to think that he was hunted. But fortunately, he took thought to examine the tracks, and so assured himself that his inexplicable companions were of real flesh and blood. Nevertheless, he found himself growing shy of his periodical journeys through the wood, and at last he opened his mind to Kirsty on the subject. Kirsty was amused in her grave way. Why, Dave, she explained, didn't you know Miranda was that thick with the wild thing she's half wild herself? Weren't you carrying a lot of Miranda's knit stuff when the creatures followed you? That's so, Kirsty, was the old lumberman's reply. I recollect as how the big buck kept us sniffing at my pack of socks and mitts, too. They were some of Miranda's friends, and when they smelled of those mitts they thought she was somewhere around, or else they knew you must be a friend of hers. Thenceforward old Dave always looked for something of a procession in his honour whenever he carried Miranda's knittings to the settlement, and he was intensely proud of the distinction. He talked about it among his gossips, of course, and therefore a lot of strange stories began to circulate. It was said by some that Kirsty and Miranda held converse with the beasts in plain English such as common mortals use, and knew all the secrets of the woods and much besides that humans have no call to know. By others, more superstitious and fanatical, it was whispered that no mere animals formed the circle of Kirsty's associates, but that spirits in the guise of hares, foxes, cats, panthers, bears, were her familiars at the solitary cabin. Such malicious tales cost old Dave many a bitter hour, as well as more than one sharp combat till the gossips learned to keep a bridle on their tongues when he was by. As for young Dave, he had let the clearing and all its affairs drop from his mind, and betaking himself to a wild region to the north of the Kadavik, was fast making his name as a hunter and trapper. He came but seldom to the settlement, and when he came he had small ear for the settlement scandals. His mind was growing large and quiet and tolerant among the great solitudes. End of chapter 9